Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode is going to take us to Australia, where we're going to talk with Stuart Truman. Stuart's a man of the world, having visited more than 40 countries and paddled in both the Arctic and Antarctic. And in this episode, you'll be captivated by his tale of paddling 17,000 kilometers solo and unsupported all the way around Australia. A big thank you to Sean Gresser. Sean was my guest on episode 44, and she connected me with Stuart. So thank you, Sean. And enjoy today's episode with Stuart Truman. Hi, Stuart. Thank you for joining Paddling the Blue. Uh, thank you, John. Oh, you've had quite a varied past. So, Stuart, tell the listeners a little bit about your history of world travel and how you got started paddling. Oh, well, most of that's ancient history around about now, but um, I used to do a lot of climbing. My uh, outdoor activities were hiking, climbing, and that sort of thing in Europe. I originate from England, so I used to spend a lot of my time climbing. And then it spread to the Alps, and then I started traveling and backpacking around the world. And after winging my way around the world a couple of times, I ended up in Australia. Found Australia to have a load of space that just was aching to be explored. And that this is where I ended up. I, I currently live in Sydney, Australia, and um, have spent the last 25 years exploring the country and nearby. So you got your start in England and uh, and grew up there as far as possible from the sea in England, is that right? <laughs> That's right. So I grew up in the middle of England near the, a place called the Peak District. And the Peak District is, has got a lot of climbing, hiking and stuff. But it's mostly the climbing that I visited and got stuck into. And it, it's got a bit of, uh, there's a peak at the top called Kinder Scout. And I used to train myself how to navigate with a map and a compass and then I started to expand on that and wonder how they navigated boats without, you know, a, a mountain to take a bearing off and gradients to work with and things like that. So I did a navigation course in the middle of England. And from there, my interest in the sea started. But I didn't actually start sea kayaking until I moved to uh, Sydney, Australia, which is far more convenient for sea kayaking than uh, the middle of England. Now, what was it, uh, aside from being in a paddler's paradise, what was it that said sea kayaking is going to be the thing for me? So I went through the climbing area and climbed here for a long while. And then I decided to try kayaking, but there's no white waters here. When it doesn't rain, there's no rivers. So and any rivers are about a six-hour drive. So I never really thought about kayaking until I went to a, a climbing symposium in the mountains. And um, this was a climbing competition. They had talks, uh, they had um, you know stands of people flogging stuff. And uh, I was on crutches because I'd, I'd managed to break both my legs. And I got fed up of people asking me how I broke my legs. So I went off into one of the talks and it was a talk about a, an adventurer who had amongst other things, kayaked across Bass Strait. And Bass Strait is the body of water between south, south of Australia and Tasmania. And I looked at my crutches and I thought, hey, I can do that. I don't need my legs for that. So um, 
So they, I think a couple of months later, I bought my first kayak and started uh, training myself in how to use it, how to roll, how to get back in. And then I found out that the guy who was doing the presentations had not actually kayaked across Bass Strait amongst some of his other stories. He, he was under a bit of pressure from sponsors and he made up a load of stories. But uh, <laughs> despite that, he gave me the, uh, the seeds were set and I realized that sea kayaking was a, a, a good a done deal for me. It, it really lit all the... Uh, Lit all the buttons up for me, and I got stuck into the learning as fast as I could, as hard as I could, sea kayaking. So from there, you decided to go big, and uh, you started to go on a few adventures. And I understand one of your first large adventures in a sea kayak was Antarctica. Is that great? Oh, I bounced around a little bit before that. So I okay. I did the the Bass Strait crossing, and then a couple of years later, I did. Uh, the Western Bass Strait Crossing, which is, um, it's a bit of a step up. It's, uh, the water is a bit more volatile and the distance is around about 100 kilometers between landfalls and the weather is a bit harsher. So after the Western Bass Strait, people started to see me as possibly useful on trips. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine called Andrew McCauley and he, uh, invited me on a expedition down to Antarctica and so it was about I think it was about 2007 that we went to Antarctica and that was a, that was a great trip there's three of us there's me Andy and Lawrence Geergen and we got on a yacht on the on a place called Ushawaya down at the south it was about as far south as you can get in America at South Park. Ushawara actually stands for the end of the world. And then we sailed this yacht down through Drake's Passage across to the northern tip of Antarctica. None of us had done any real ocean sailing. And um, in the first hour or two, we had all made plans to sell houses, give up jobs and buy yachts. And then when we hit the open ocean, we were all in our cots being ill and wishing we were dead. So needless to say, we never bought yachts. <laughs> Changed the tune real quickly. <laughs> uh, it did. As soon as the seas got big, we realized that it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns out there. <laughs> but uh, it, it only took a few hours for most of us to get our sea legs, and then the fun started. But there were a couple on that boat that never actually got their sea legs, and I do feel for them. They, they had a, a terrible time. <laughs> So tell us about the route that you took in uh, Antarctica. Oh, well, that's pretty easy. You start at the north of the peninsula, keep it on the left, and just go as far south as you can. So we, we went from Cape Hope, I think it is, an Argentinian base on the, as, on, like I say, on the Antarctic Peninsula. It's the tip of the peninsula that it looks like it's reaching out for the southern part of South America. So the yacht dropped us off there with our kit and um, arranged to meet us in the Antarctic Circle, which is, I think it's about 800 kilometers uh, south from there. There's really only one way you can go. You can only follow the coast down. But uh, our first, I have a history of having dramas on the first day of trips, and this was no exception. So we, weather forecasts are difficult to get down there, or they, they were at the time, and we set off from the base and we got around about 15 kilometers down the coast and we got hit by a catabatic wind 
and a catabatic wind it can't really be forecast. It's what, what happens is the wind, the, sorry, the air temperature gets cold on a hanging glacier, on the glaciers on the, uh, on the peninsula, sorry, on the head of the glaciers, and it gets to a point where it basically falls off the uh, Antarctica. And without warning, you know, there's no cloud signs, there's no forecasting this, it just drops off and then you, you're hit with 50 knot winds. You, you can be, we went from zero to 50 knot winds in, in 15 minutes. And then there's very choppy seas and the seas have got ice in them or where we were had seas with ice in them about the size of a TV dropping these blocks of ice on our fully loaded kayaks and we were not enjoying this at all. I guess not. So we, yeah, and it was cold. It was, it was, it was cold. So we all split up. We, we were not intending to, of course, and it was so strong and so wild that at one point none of us could see the other two and we all thought the other two had died. Uh, but eventually we all made it back to the base at, by the end of the day. And, uh, yeah, that was that was day one. Day two got a bit better than that, and then it got even better than that. We headed off down south. There was very little information for us to go on, and there were some currents and some tides that we we weren't uh, expecting. But it was a it was a beautiful place down there. It was very wild, untouched area at the time. You come across bases, perhaps once a week. You'll come across a base, and, and then when you come across one, there's normally because it's in a good area, and there'll be one or two different bases uh, different countries will have a representative down there doing research or whatever they do always good for a chat and scab a bit of food the wildlife was spectacular the uh, the penguins the seals the whales they all put on a good show for us uh, made us feel welcome we saw some orcas down there and um, after you haven't seen people for a couple of days you start to get a bit go wild sort of thing and we saw these orcas and their fins stuck so far out of the water that I saw I caught one out of the corner of my eye and I thought oh that's a, that's a guy on a jet ski that's strange <laughs> didn't think anything of it started paddling on and then I went hold on a minute remember where you asked you there's no jet skis down here and there was uh, there's a pot of pot of orcas chasing seals and yeah it was it was lovely to be part of all that there's a short summer down there and everything makes its way down there to to breed and to eat and fatten themselves up for the winter and they really don't care too much about three kayakers so they they go about their daily life and we can just paddle right up to them and it's it's as if you're just looking at them as if through a tv it's it was wonderful had whales sitting underneath us rolling over having a look at us with a little eye and then just carrying on doing whatever they were doing it was it was a wonderful place it certainly sounds like a, an incredible experience. Now, how long was that trip? The actual kayaking part was five weeks, but we spent time in South America. We landed in Buenos Aires and had to get the kayaks down to the southern point uh, via a truck. And then we spent some time in Ushuaia getting some food together and all the logistics. And then it took us about a week to get over on the yacht. Oh, not quite a week, but four or five days to get over on the yacht and then five weeks kayaking and then all back again. So we took the yacht back to Ushuaia and then back to Buenos Aires, kayaks fly out. So I, I, I can't remember the exact, it was about about three months, I think. 
Now, did you have a specific purpose for the trip, or was it a uh, attempting an un, undone or uncompleted route or anything of that type, or just going down to, just for enjoyment? Uh, we we did have a target to try and get as far south as anybody had been in a kayak. We weren't able to do that because the ice had broken up and had choked one of the uh, route corridors, uh, and we couldn't do it. We had uh, some experiences of trying to get in between islands with icebergs uh, floating around in them. It looks great on photos because in photos they don't actually move, but when you're kayaking between them and the current picks up or changes or the wind and these things the size of houses start colliding and closing in front of you and opening and you realise that it's you're playing with fire there. So we, we decided to cut the trip around about the Antarctic Peninsula. That's about as far as we could get. But I think at the time, we we did get us further south than anybody had been in a kayak, but uh, it was mostly for enjoyment. Well, congratulations on uh, on that and uh, and having a great time and great experiences. Uh, it, it really was one of the best trips I've been on. It was uh, a spectacular place to go. So a few years later, you wrote a book about one of your most famous adventures titled All the Way Around. And so tell us about your 16-month 17,000 kilometer paddle around Australia. Well, I've been thinking about the trip ever since I bought a, a kayak. I bought the kayak and I bought Paul Caffin's book on the same day. And the Antarctic trip was done. The other two guys were younger than me. And I realized that uh, if I was going to do the big round Australia trip, I'd better get my skates on and start making some serious moves to it before I got too old. So yeah, so at the time, I think Paul Caffin was the only person to have done it, and he did that in around about 1982. So I made some plans, I, I got some time off work, and uh, the wife was sort of okay with it until she did some sums, and then we agreed that I could go so long as the kids were old enough to get themselves to and from school on the bus to make life a bit easier for her. And then Freya Hofmeister, she followed in Paul's footsteps and circumnavigated all the way around. And then I set off in April 2010 from Broome. And yes, you're right, 16 months all the way around Australia. So why? Why, uh, why was that the objective for you? Well, so I did a bit of history buffing, you know, and Shackleton and Mawson and Livingstone and those guys. And what we call an adventure is really just cherry picking. And I mean, their transport to wherever they were going was what we would call an adventure. I mean, you imagine sailing a square rigger to Antarctica with no GPS, just a sextant and a wing and a prayer. I mean, I often envied them that they would have those long periods of an adventure. So I tried to be as realistic as I could, and uh, that was the longest objective time-wise that I thought I could do. Some things appeal to me, and then I just can't let it go. My head just won't let it go. And that was one of them. the, uh, the round Australia thing. It, I mean, it was local. It was, I didn't have to negotiate different countries. It was a trip that was going to take me over a year, and it would answer a lot of questions I didn't know about myself, which is, could I actually keep going for over a year? Did I have the fortitude, the physical ability, and the the motivation to keep going? And uh, it answered all those questions for me. 
So I've had a, a talks with a few other guests where we've talked about a proper adventure. And you just mentioned Shackleton and a few others and the, the, the proper adventure and the true expedition style um, of, you know, of planning, but not having all those trappings of, uh, of technology that we have today and, and such. How did you emulate that proper adventure? So I can't really personally because we've got maps, GPS. I can look from a satellite where I'm going. People have already been anywhere I can get to. It's it's not um, not an absolute mystery. So to try and emulate people going somewhere for the first time with equipment that is you know state of the art of the day, but didn't actually give them any heads up too much. They were all they were still going to an area where they had no idea about the weather, the tides, the um, the wildlife, the inherent dangers that they were going to come across. And you just can't duplicate that today. Even if you said, "Well, I'm going to paddle around Tasmania, and I'm not going to take a mobile phone, a GPS, or..." EPIRB, anything like that. I'm just going to take a, 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 a radio for weather forecasts. And people, you wouldn't be hailed as a hero. It, you would be regarded as um, reckless. It's, it's so ingrained in us now that that's how it's done. I don't think we can emulate those guys. So I did the best I could. My unknown was... I hadn't been to 99% of the area I was going to. And as I said, the distance and the time and the unknown factors were the best I could do with the budget I had, the time I had, and my ability. But you still opted to do the trip unsupported and in some cases partially disconnected, though. I I understand you didn't have a device with you that would tell people where you were every second of the day and those sorts of things, so you could still feel a little disconnected. Is that right? Yeah, so I I was unsupported. I think the other trips had a bit of support on some of the areas. The reason I do that is because it's hard to find support. (laughs) And if I go out, if I go on a trip and I'm I'm on my own, then I'm on my own. You know, I, I don't particularly want to carry a beeping thing that tells people where I'm camping. What's the point of that? I mean, I've got a beeping thing that tells people I'm drowning, that come and get me, but I don't, what's the point of having a beeping thing telling you where they are? I, I, I don't, I disconnect myself as much as I can. Uh, it's my trip, it's my journey. Yeah, I, I, I don't do it for any glorious reasons other than for my own enjoyment. So. Yeah, the pressure of having other people knowing where you are and following your trip can sometimes make you make the wrong decisions. And uh, I'd much rather be alone and make my decisions based on the day, the time, and where I am. There's definite truth to that, and uh, and uh, there's there's respect there as well. So how did you choose your route? Yeah, so I thought about it for a while. The thing, the, the weather in Australia, well, Australia is such a big continent that there is various weather systems that have to be taken into consideration. So you really want to avoid the wet season in the northern half, and that runs from November to April. I mean, the wet season has, I mean, apart from the rain, which is 
probably a good thing because it gives you drinking water, but it also brings cyclones, which are very bad, and the humidity. The humidity itself is it's like trying to move around with bricks on your head. It would be just monstrously horrible. On the west coast of West Australia, the prevailing winds in the summer run very strongly from south to north, and the other prevailing winds around Australia dictate that an anti-clockwise direction is is the best way to go. It's the only way to go, really. I'm not sure anybody could manage it going the other way. The reason that Paul Caffin and Freya, they both left from Melbourne, and I chose to leave from Broome because both those, Paul, Paul and Freya, were they covered a lot more ground than I could have done or I was confident that I could do. And the main obstacle with kayaking around Australia is uh, cliffs on the western coast called the Zoitdorp Cliffs. Zoitdorp's a strange name, but it's named after a Dutch boat that managed to plough itself into the cliffs. Th these cliffs are 200 kilometres long. And like I said before, the west on the west coast, the prevailing winds are from south to north, which would be against me. And they run 20 knots and trying to paddle 200 kilometers into 20 knots is would be a bit of an ask these cliffs have got one place where you could possibly exit and that's 30 kilometers in so what i did was i left from Broome at a time just before the end of the wet season and it gave me enough time to get to the zoitdorp cliffs at the best time of year to get favorable conditions to paddle the Zoitdorp cliffs so my route was dictated by that so i mean 200 kilometers with one exit point that's pretty committing yeah yeah and there's absolutely no hope of anywhere else i mean it's not like you can scramble up and leave your kayak in the water it's a, a 50 to 100 meter cliff line and it is uh, sheer and the indian ocean plows straight into it the, the cliffs uh, are very deep which means that when the swell hits the cliffs I was paddling four or five kilometers away from the cliffs and still getting rebound off the cliffs what happens is you you paddle from Broome and it's a tropical zone and you get to Shark Bay and it's nice and shallow and seagrass dugongs turtles you know it's all all like you'd see on a postcard and then the next day you have to paddle out from there I and mean, in a space of half an hour you've left that world and you're out in the Indian Ocean and it's dark blue that's the first memory I've got is it being dark blue cold massive swell there were whales albatross you know so you leave a, a fairly sheltered water and all of a sudden you're in the open ocean and then you turn left and all you can see is this cliff and a load of spray going up into the air and then you've just got to head off and it's 200 kilometers I, I can't remember the exact hours it took me about 38 hours to paddle to Kilbari which is the literally the cliff ends and there's a river entrance and there's a little town there called Kilbari so to try and split it up into reasonable chunks uh, what I did was I split it up into six hour segments every six hours I would hope to do around about 40 kilometers I had a bag of food for those six hours and I paddled for six hours mainly trying to think about which part of the food bag I was going to eat every hour <laughs> so that's the 
it's ex- it's most of the thought process is what am I going to eat next? <laughs> I suppose that was probably the theme for much of the trip. You're just using a lot of calories. Yeah, yeah. I had to be careful. Uh, I didn't lose too much weight. I, I managed to get the balance right. Uh, there were some parts of the trip where I, uh, because of the weather and lack of food and things, I had to go on half rations and sort of pump out a few extra kilometers. And then the weight really sort of fell off me to make it harder the next day. But generally speaking, I, I kept the right weight. And uh, yeah, it, it is a definitely a factor, uh, as is water. Water is much uh, forgotten about but water is far more important than food out there so let's talk about those two things let's just let's address the water piece first so Mm. water is it plentiful or hard to find along the coast all right so let's talk about the northern half so northern half of australia there is i got there just after the wet season and so there's not a problem with water Uh, the problem with the northern half of Australia is every little creek and river that runs into the sea has normally got its own resident crocodile. And the better the water, the bigger the creek, the bigger the fish, the bigger the crocodile. (laughs) So uh, you could say there's plenty of water, but you can see it, but it's not that easy to get. And I I would would meet locals and they would say, yeah, you just go up the river there, um, you'll see the hut, it's just over the rise, and there'll be hut and food and barbecue and help yourself. But what they don't realise is that when they go up there in their tinnies, their motorboats, the crocodiles all sink to the bottom of the river. They can stand on their tinny and they can look over the four metre bank to see the hut, and it's not a problem. But when you paddle towards these creeks and river entrances, when a crocodile is te- getting territorial, what it does is it swims out to you and it keeps its head and its tail out of the water so that any other crocodile can see how big it is. And unfortunately, a sea kayak also has its front and its back that stick out of the water. So I'm approaching these rivers and things sort of fairly tentatively because this has happened to me a couple of times already, so I've learned my lesson. And then when I see this log floating towards me against the current and against the wind, I know that it's on. So what I'd have to do is I'd have to turn around, uh, keep composure and paddle back out to sea long enough for the crocodile to lose interest. And then when he's turned around and gone back home, I'll just turn around, land on the beach about four or 500 meters away and then have to walk back to the water source. So I could say that there's lots of water in the northern half, but there is a bit of work involved in getting it. In the southern half, there's a, an area called the Great Australian Bight, and that runs um, from Esperance to around about Adelaide. That is one of the most remote areas on the trip, and it's limestone. So when it rains, it soaks into the limestone. So there's apparently some great cave diving in that area. Not my bag, but all the water goes underground, and there is nowhere where the water runs into the sea for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers and on top of that the ocean could be quite rough so beach landings are strewn with reefs and the surf can be considerable and there's two two other sets of cliffs there that run across the bight that are about 160 and 190 kilometers long so the the great australian bight has a you have to carry a, a good amount of water 
and you have to have a fair bit of luck and you have to negotiate these cliffs and so that that area there would be i think the greatest problem with water would be the great australian bite so in addition to uh, the zipdarp cliffs of 200k you've got two sets of cliffs of 160 and 190k in the great australian bite and you've got no water that's right so to start the cliffs i had to paddle for three days to get to the first cliff negotiate a reef and land on through surf and then i sleep in behind the dunes watching for crocodiles i know this is down south so there's no crocs down there there's (laughs) just big big white pointy things and you have to have enough water then to do a hundred and you you can say the cliffs are 160 kilometers long but you don't actually start at the beginning of the cliffs because i couldn't get there it was too rough so i had to go back 10 k's or something and then so you need water for two or three days paddle you need water to do 160 so you need water to paddle all day all night and most of the next day and then when you land you don't land at a McDonald's, you land on a remote beach and then you say you need water to recover and water to get to the next water, which could be a day or two ago, a t- day or two away. And that's just water. So that's like, that's a, that's a lot of weight you've got to hump around. And if you get delayed by the weather, you get injured, you break something, then you have to retrace your steps and go back to the water source because it's very unlikely there's going to be a, a somebody swinging by wherever you land on the beach. It's, you can sit there for days and you won't see a soul. So it's, it's a very remote area. Did you have to carry a desalinator or did you just carry water as you, as you found it and then purify as much as you could? I did carry a desalinator. My experience with desalinators is... is probably not the best. When you land on a beach and you've got a desalinator, how do you desalinate sand-ridden waters in the surf? You need a lot of seawater to get very little drinking water and it takes hours. So the only thing I could do was to roll the kayak in in the surf, drag it up the beach as far as I could, wait for the sand to settle in the cockpit, which is the biggest vessel I had, and then desalinate the water out of the cockpit into bottles. You know, I'm still in the surf zone because I just can't move the kayak too far up. And it's a lot of work for very little water. But nevertheless, it was I got through with the water I carried. The desalinator was there just in case. But it's a three kilo lump of iron. And on one of the crossings, on, one of the, on the last cliffs i had a dry bag on the back which i put the desalinator in and i tried to use it so it was full of water so it weighed like i say three kilos and in my (laughs) this isn't the desalinator's fault this is just a story (laughs) about the desalinator and so on the last trip on the last cliffs there was a reef and i'd landed at high tide not knowing this reef was there and then Next morning, I wake up and I can see this reef. It stretched as far left and right as I could see. But about 50 metres away, there was a gap. And the gap was about the width of a kayak. And the, the gap was about the width of the length of the kayak, about five metres, which might sound a lot. But there was a lot of sea coming in. And all the water trapped behind the reef was exiting through this gap. 
So it created very steep breaking waves at, at the entrance. And then there was like a, a brick wall on both sides. So if I made a run and I got hit by one of the breaking waves, I, had, I would be coming back onto a brick wall, onto the reef. So I'm, I'm pacing up and down the beach. I'm trying to figure out what the hell to do because if I got the timing wrong, wrong I'm, you know, it's all over. There's no, there'll be no easy exit out of this. The car could be lost and etc. So I geared myself up for a, a trip and I put all the emergency stuff on me in case I had to abandon the kayak. And then I, I strapped the rear deck bag on through the desalinator in there, but I didn't put enough rolls in the deck bag when I was closing it because I was half an eye on the reef, half an eye on the exit, and I was trying to work out the timing, and I, I missed a few rolls. I got through the hole in the reef there, and I was very, very pleased about that. And then all I have to do is paddle 190, 200 kilometers. Off I go. And unbeknown to me that it was quite a rough trip, that one. The, the, the seas were quite rough. And the deck bag at the back filled up with water. So it weighed by now five or six kilos. And because it was on the top of the deck, my kayak was very, very unstable. And by now, my... Um, spray skirt had frayed and got holes in it so when the waves came over the deck I was getting hypothermic and I didn't realize it at the time and I couldn't understand why I was wobbling and why I was I was getting very nervous about falling in because my kayak was far more unstable than it should be and I, I had no idea that I'd screwed up the deck bag well I hadn't screwed up the deck bag which is the problem so I, I did the cliffs I did all that and uh, paddling at night in the mist, in the rain, not being able to see the waves come and trying then to react to the, to the waves. Um, it was very difficult. You'd be surprised when you've got peripheral vision in good daylight, you can handle waves without thinking about it. You know, you just brace, you just tilt, you just carry on. You don't even pause. But when you can't see them and you have to react very quickly, you really don't want to go in that water. It was cold, it's cold water, 13 degrees water. And I was getting more and more hypothermic. I started hallucinating. I, was, I could see myself over my left shoulder looking down on me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was chanting the names of the kids, trying to stay awake, trying to keep motivated, keep going. And then I landed at the end of the cliffs, literally the cliffs end and there's a beach there and it was not a surf beach, it was just a, a nice little beach. There was a whale there with a calf. I landed on the beach and I dragged the kayak up the beach a bit and by now I'm, I'm pretty pooped. And then I, then I got, took the deck bag off and there it is, it's full of about three litres of water and then I realised of course that the bloody desalinator had filled up with water and that was why I was so wobbly. And I sat down, there was a, an abandoned chair, and I had a handful of rice, about two litres of water. I had to paddle the next day to get to, a, to the next water stop. And I was, I was exhausted, like I was exhausted beyond just paddling for 36 hours. I was hypothermic and had to go through all that stuff. And I sat down and I looked at my handful of rice and thought, well, I'll eat that and I'll just fall asleep. And then in the distance, there was a, a, like a dust cloud coming my way along the beach. And in, within 
half an hour, an hour of me landing and looking at my sorry state, three um, four-wheel drives turned up and they looked after me. They gave me a big feed and all the water and beer I could drink and uh, the next morning everything was good again. <laughs> so that's my desalinator story. <laughs> So other than uh, other than that, which good fortune to to get food. How how did you manage the food situation along the way? Food you can do without. Food you can spread food out. You can go on half rations. You can you can do what you like. I can put ten days of food in the kayak, but I you can't half ration water without significantly, in, in my experience, degrading your performance. Food over a while, yes, you'll 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 start to fail. But you can go surprisingly good way on a what we would consider a small amount of food. Don't forget it's not freezing cold down there. We're not talking polar exploration where you need to cut the food to keep your body temperature right. So I would carry 10 days of food. I would and um, I'd just get it at supermarkets. I only in the up north, in the um, crossing the top there where there's no supermarkets, did I have food drops. Uh, everywhere else I just went to the supermarket and made do with that. So what resources did you use to plan the trip? So it was mostly about where to start and when. Once you've started, then you've just got to make do with what's ahead. So I just had to make sure that it was a realistic thing. Know the main obstacles, which is, as I said before, it's the cliffs, the seasons up north, a bit of wildlife in there, but, you know, that's, that's, that's normal. But it was mostly the prevailing winds and the conditions. The route is, you know, the route is just, as somebody said, keep Australia on your left. But it's when and where to start. And then once you've started, you've just got to maintain a rhythm and an estimate. You know, you, I estimated I'd do about a thousand kilometers a month because that's what I did on all my other trips. And that was true. That's, that's what happens. So the how did I get the planning? Mostly looking at the weather reports from, from Bonn. I had some pilots, had pilots on nautical charts. So the fishing here in Australia is very good. So I made sure I had some fishing information because everywhere where somebody could launch a boat, that means that there would be a boat ramp, there'll be water, there'll be people. So I made sure I knew where all that was in the in the remote areas of the East Coast. It, it really doesn't matter because you're going to come across a little village or a town or something every every second or third day so you know i didn't worry about the east coast it was mostly the remote areas in the north and the south and the west so what were the most beautiful parts of the trip most people say what was your favorite area and um, i've got an answer for that one but the most beautiful you've you've got me there so I, i'm gonna have to say the kimberley the kimberley is without doubt a special place uh, that uh, if that doesn't get into your bones, then nothing will. What is it about the Kimberley? Oh, I wish I could tell you. Um, <laughs> it's a timeless place. It's um, You can just look at it and know that it hasn't changed forever. The rocks um, appear, I mean, I'm not a geologist, but the rocks and the cliffs just seem to have been there since time began and nothing's changed. I mean, there are some tourist boats there are some tinnies flying around, but you, if you spend enough time there, it, it's just a place that you just, it just gets into your bones and you just relax and 
it's, it's not an easy place. They've got it's got eight meter tides, loads of large lizards and sharks and other stingy things. But uh, you can paddle towards an island, and as you're paddling towards it, it disappears because the tide's rising, and then you paddle over it. It's uh, it, those eight meter tides are, are make, make your day pretty trippy. I paddled in one area and the ground, the reef was in front of me. And as I paddled, the tide was rising and I didn't, wasn't going full flat stick, but I was moving along. And at the speed I was going, the tide was coming at the same speed. So three kayaks ahead of me was just ground. And as I got to it, the tide rise and it was water by the time I got there. That was, that was pretty good because following, following me at the same time were a load of turtles and small sharks making the most of being first there. So, yeah, so it's a trippy area. Kimberley, I'm, I'm struggling to tell you, but you just have to go there. And like I say, if it doesn't touch you, you must have been somewhere else that <laughs> I haven't been. So tell us a little bit about the wildlife. You've made a couple of mentions about wildlife. Yeah. Well, there's the crocodiles. Everybody wants to hear about the crocodiles, but the bird life changes all the way around because you're, you're leaving a cold area of the south coast there and you're heading up north where it's tropical zones so bird life can change and the flora and fauna can change very quickly so you can turn a corner and there will be different flowers and birds the next day um, because the corner you've turned the weather system changes if you've got an eye for that sort of stuff some people that can happen to and they don't see it because they don't look for the wildlife they don't notice this stuff but when you're when you're paddling through an area and you're in the food chain you'd better make sure that you know what's going on around you i've noticed the wildlife all of my life and it was nice to see it change so there were seals there was a seal down near perth and I, it followed me for three days it had a cut on one of its uh, on the side of its head probably a shark bite and I know it was the same seal and he'd come up every day and I'd uh, stroke him with a paddle and he'd, off he'd go and then I'd see him the same day, uh, same time next day and things like that would happen. I saw sea snakes fighting each other in the water, fighting or doing the other thing that they do. The variety was tremendous. Dingoes howling in the, in the north, that's, uh, that'll put the hair on the back of your neck up. Uh, it's just an eerie sound. Not dangerous in any way, but just an eerie sound. And a lot of lot of stuff. I saw a sunfish the size of a car. Sharks. I saw a shark swim by me, and I thought to start off with that it was a, a couple of small sharks. But then I realised that one was the dorsal and one was the tail fin, and it was a big shark. Yeah, I, I, off the top of my head, I, I can't think of too much. But to see it change and notice it change very quickly at some areas, that, that was... That was that was quite good. That was quite impressive stuff. Now you had employed a technique that I think you mentioned it was questionable in, in its effectiveness, uh, but to the underside of your boat to kind of ward off wildlife. <laughs> yeah. So sharks sharks are a, a thing for no other reason than they mistake you for food. So what I did was I got a couple of stickers of eyes and stuck them on the back of the kayak because the shark will always come from behind, the element of surprise. And uh, I thought, well, for the sake of a couple of stickers, I'll, I'll try it out. And 
I can't say that it worked. I think it's been proven that it's a crock and it won't, won't help you in any way in the same way that yum yum yellow kayaks are not yum yum yellow for sharks. The biggest problem I had with sharks was uh, in an area called 80 Mile Beach. And this is an area where there are seven meter tides and the beach is very sloping, very gradual sloping beach. So when, you, when the tide's out, you can't see it. Uh, you can't see the water. So you have to land at high tide or close to, and you have to launch at high tide or close to. And sometimes this means that you have to get up at some god-awful hour of the day. And on this particular day, I had to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to catch the high tide, otherwise I've got to drag all my kit like a kilometre or two down the beach. And I landed once or twice, and when you've got two bags of kit and a kayak and the tide's coming in at walking pace, it's like a, a Buster Keaton comedy movie where there's me running down the beach with two bags of stuff, going back, trying to catch my kayak before it floats off and then trying to catch my bags of gear before they go underwater. And, and oh man, so you don't want to go through that every day. So I set off at midday, uh, midnight or two o'clock. And because of the high tide and the fine sand that the beach was made of, the tide produced a lot of movement in the water, which brought the sand, the sand into the water, and it was like paddling through milk. So you put your hand in the water and you couldn't see it if it was an inch under the water. And I'm paddling along, and then whammo, um, I got hit by sharks uh, probably every two hours and some of them were not small hits there's two types of sharks there there's reef sharks and tiger sharks and I could just about tell you which one was which when they hit me but because they can't see either they just go on the movement of the water and with me paddling along and my rudder uh, flicking through the water the small ones would go for the rudder and the big ones would go for the paddle splashes and as well as the sand in the water, there was luminescence in the water. So I could see the shapes of sharks swimming by me, you know, like the, a, a, an absolute copy of the body of the shark swimming past me in luminescence. And sometimes when the, the tiger sharks came underneath, it would hit the kayak, like it, my kayak was loaded, like it must have weighed 150, 200 kilos. It wasn't going to go anywhere. I was a bit worried it was going to put a hole in there. But as soon as the sharks realized it, it wasn't a fish, it wasn't what they expected, they clear out. But by then the damage is done. And this one particular one came up underneath me and the whole area of sea lit up with the phosphorescence. It was as if a car was underneath me pointing at the bottom of the kayak and he flicked his headlights on full and then flick them off again. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was a stunning, stunning experience. But in the end, they bit off half the rudder and that didn't make life any easier for me. And as I'm coming into land, there's one caravan park on 80 Mile Beach and somebody had just arrived. They'd obviously been in the car all day and mom was on the beach and Johnny was on the, in the water. And I was about three boat lengths away from him when the last shark hit the kayak. So I landed and uh, got the kayak out of the water, pointed to my rudder, which was half bitten off, and said, that happened about 15 metres from your child. And so she grabbed Johnny, and I don't think they went within 15 metres of the sea again. <laughs>
So you wrote in the book about uh, the dark side, or what you refer to as the dark side of planning a massive trip. And this is the little talked about aspect of trips that deserves a little bit of attention. So tell us a little bit more about what the dark side is. The dark side is one of the reasons I, I do a lot of my trips solo. The dark side is what stops people from getting to the starting line. Uh, perhaps the dark side is, it, <laughs> I, I call it the dark side because it's, as you said, nobody talks about it. It's not dark as in Star Wars dark. It's just not talked about. And there's many reasons that people don't manage to fulfill their, uh, what they want to do, their dreams or whatever it is. First of all, if, some, if I ask 10 people, I'm going to paddle from A to B, it's going to take a week, do you want to go? Eight out of the 10 are going to say, yep, yeah, I'm there, great, here we go. Without any consideration of the dark side, they haven't considered their job, they haven't considered money, they haven't considered travel, time off, they haven't considered family. All they know is, yes, I want to do it. And that's where it starts. And then you'll get further down the track. People will commit. And as, as soon as money happens and you have to buy airfares or you have to consider time off, then that you'll lose a few more out of the eight when they have to consider this. When the time off is considered and they've mentioned it to the wife, then you'll lose a few more or the husband or partner. And then... As, as the trip gets closer, you, you get down to the, to the few. And then when you've got a commitment from the few and some uh, event happens and you've planned your trip for four people, one of them can't make it, that means the logistics is all wrong and it, it, it can be a bit troublesome. And there can be good reasons. I mean, you, can, you know, illness or, or what, there's thousands of good reasons. But that's the dark side. Whatever prevents people from getting to the starting line. And if you're a solo kayaker, then you don't have to worry about the dark side because you know I've sorted out the dark side enough to be able to get done what I want to get done. So there are still a couple of pieces, though, that are, are hard to manage even, even as a solo. So how did you manage the family piece and getting that, that part taken care of? Well, that's, that's tricky because... The wife knows I'm recording this, so she's going to listen to this. <laughs> I've been doing outdoor activities since I left school. So when the wife met me, we were uh, climbing in the Alps, um, walking around, whatever. And so she knows it's something that's, um, that's in me. Yeah, she understands the value of it, of these trips to me, and that uh, if I do them, then I'm half human. If I don't do them, I'm not human at all. So it's in her best interest to let me go. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and how about the work situation? How do you manage that? Uh, in the early days, I used to just quit jobs and go on trips or go to the Alps for a season or whatever, and then pick another job up when I got ran out of money. In the last 20 years, I've worked in the public service for Australia, and they're very generous in their uh, time off. So to get the Round Australia thing done, they had a, uh, an agreement where I could take a year off without pay and then use some of my annual leave uh, to t tack it up to, on the end. Uh, as well as that, I got long service leave and um, I, I use that to its fullest. Um, so I've been very lucky with the last 20 years. But before that, I was, like, was travelling around the world and yeah, used my time as best I could. 
quite frugal with money, which um, so I could get trips done and go places I wanted to go and quit jobs, travel, do what I needed to do. So knowing what you know today, would you do it again? If I knew then what I knew today, I'd just have gone harder because now I'm 60. And when I look back at what I could do and what I can do now, I would have just gone harder then. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd have done it with bells on. What advice would you have for, for would-be adventurers planning a trip? Maybe not one as big as yours, but a trip nonetheless. Be realistic. Um, be realistic with something that can be achieved. And take smaller steps to a bigger goal. Like The dark side is definitely something that has to be sorted out. And nobody can tell you how to sort that out because everybody's dark side is different. There's different reasons. But, you know, if you get two weeks leave every year, one week for your family, one week go and do whatever it is you want to do. And then gradually you'll get the experience to figure out what it is you're capable of and then aim higher. But whatever you do, do something. So what boat did you use for the trip? It's a boat called a, a Nagy. It's a locally made and designed boat. It's a Swede form boat, a traditional I guess you'd call it now, I uh, paddled one with, uh, without a skeg, then I paddled one with a skeg, and now I paddle one with a rudder. It's quite a stable boat, but it's an all-round thing. It's not as fast as the plumb bow uh, long boats that are popular at the moment, but it is faster than a skeg boat, and you can put a load of stuff in there. Any other particular uh, kit that you uh, just couldn't live without? When you're on the water... Uh, it's kayak, spray skirt, paddle. When you're off the water, you just need to be able to keep yourself in shape. Tent, sleeping bag, food, water, so you can get back to the other three bits of kit the next day. But now, now I have to travel with a chair, a fold-up <laughs> chair, because otherwise my back aches too much. That I think that would be an <laughs> indispensable piece of kit at the moment. How about favorite piece of kit under $100? Oh, uh, probably a bottle of scotch. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the book all the way around. Yeah, it took probably about as long to write the book as it did to do the trip. And that was something else that sort of tied it off nicely for me, you know, with these expeditioners that took months and months and months to get there and do the trip and then come home. Then they'd write a book. And so to be able to have the chance to write and publish a book was uh, it rounded the, the trip off nicely for me. It took me a while, and now I read it, and I'd love to rewrite it, but um, that's not going to happen. It was good fun, hard work. Like, you'd go to the office, you'd do your work, and then because of the kids and distractions at home, I'd have to go to the library and work for a couple of hours on the book. But it, I thoroughly enjoyed it because it meant I relived the trip again. I sort of knew that I was going to write a book. Um, somebody had already asked me before I left, so I realized that my written word is, it looks a little bit like Egyptian hieroglyphics at the best of times. But when I'm in a tent and I'm tired and I don't want to do it, I knew that I wouldn't be able to read my own writing in a few months time. So I took a, a voice recorder and at the end of each day I recorded the highs and lows. And then when I got back, I listened to myself and jotted down some notes and that was the basis for the book. I, I tried to make the book entertaining, and I tried to put enough information in there so that if anybody 
is inspired to paddle around Australia, there would be some tips and hints in there to, uh, to allow you to make good decisions. So where might someone be able to find the book? I, electronically now. I don't know. I don't have to look for it. I know, what, I know how it ends. <laughs> but if you, just, <laughs> if you just Google all the way round and my name, it, it's bound to come up on Amazon Books or um, something like that. I've found some resources, so uh, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes so people can check that out and find the book for, for themselves. So what's next on your adventurous list? Uh, well, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to, uh, with a couple of other people, we're going to paddle down the west coast of Tasmania. It's a wilderness area, and it's, it's just one of my favorite areas to go. Pretty rough area, lots of decent bouncy ocean and uh, remote camping and it's, it's a beautiful spot. So we've got five weeks paddling down the west coast of Tasmania in a couple of months. Well, enjoy that. So how can listeners reach you and learn more if they had additional questions? Uh, well, I've got a Facebook page. I don't have any commercial interest in sea kayaking. I, I don't sell anything. I, I don't charge for instruction or anything. So I, if people have questions, then just personal message me on the Facebook. I'm not hard to find. If you go through the New South Wales Sea Kayak Club, uh, somebody there will contact me that you've contacted them and um, we'll, we'll get together. Well, I, uh, I reached you through, uh, I guess it was a member of that club as well, uh, Sean Gresser. Yeah, well, Sean's one of the people going down the West Coast with me, so um, it'll be a good trip. We'll be able to compare, compare interviews. I've got one final question for you, Stuart, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? There is a guy who's currently paddling from Australia to New Zealand. His name is uh, Richard Barnes and his kayak is called Blue Moon and he has a, a Facebook page there that somebody's maintaining for him with his progress and I'm pretty sure that early 2022 when he finishes he should be up for a story or two. He will definitely have uh, something to say. Well that certainly sounds like a fascinating adventure as well. Um, as was your adventure and other adventures. So it's been wonderful to have the opportunity to learn from you and learn a little bit about your history and learn about Antarctica and uh, your all-the-way-around trip around Australia. And so I really appreciate your time and really appreciate learning from you, and I'm certain our, our listeners will enjoy the, uh, the episode as well. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, John. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Wow, 38-hour solos, sharks, crocodiles, 16 months, and 17,000 kilometers. What a trip. Check out the show notes by going to www.paddlingtheblue.com and clicking on the episode, and there you'll find links to connect with Stuart, find his book all the way around as well. And his boat, the Naji, 
was designed and manufactured by Expedition Kayaks, and one of that company's co-founders, Mark Sondon, was also a previous guest, and you can hear his story on episode 37. Speaking of boat design and building, for our next episode, we're going to head to the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., where we talk with pioneer of the sport, Brian Henry. Brian's the founder of Current Designs, and he's going to share stories of the early days of boat building alongside some of the personalities that make our sport what it is today. Thanks as always for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.
So how much fun did you have? Uh, Now, lots. On the day, I think the most fun was at the end of the day where where you sit down and you're in these remote areas and you're looking uh, looking at a part of the world that very rarely gets visited. And you can sit down and you're the king for a few hours, you know, while the sun goes down, you're the king of that area. And it, it made the whatever you've had to go through to get to that point it made it all worthwhile and that that would be um that would be the most fun uh, regular fun i think but again you couldn't call it fun it's more like satisfying or reflection that you know (laughs) anyway 